We go through it every year. We talk about Luther posting his 95 theses on the door of the chapel in Wittenberg. I want to take a little tack in a different, different direction this morning. I hope you will be patient with me. I want to talk about an area of the Reformation that is not always very often talked about. For you see, the Reformation went in many different directions. One of the places that it went was the city which today uh, is not that well known, but at that point was very important, the city of Heidelberg, which is actually between today, sort of between Germany and France. Heidelberg was an imperial city. It was one of the major cities of what was called the Holy Roman Empire, which is where Luther posted his theses. And the prince that ruled in Heidelberg ruled a small area that was called the Palatinate. But he was actually quite important because he was one of the seven men who elected the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. It's very easy to remember. It was neither holy, nor was it Roman, nor was it an empire. So the elector Palatinate was an important man. And Heidelberg had a large, important university that very quickly became a center of controversy within the Reformation. Now, you may not realize this, but the Reformation did not proceed gently or easily. Martin Luther, who was the man who God used to sort of strike the match... Martin Luther had some, shall we say, rather odd opinions on very things, various things. And as time progressed and as the Reformation spread, his opinions became, on the one hand, gospel for those who called themselves Lutherans, and on the other hand, questionable to those who eventually would be like us in the Reformed camp. All of that boiled down to a point on the question of communion and how to interpret communion. Luther said, the Catholics are wrong. It doesn't become the body and blood, but the body and blood are physically present. Some of the reforms said, no, it's just a memorial. There is no presence at all. Calvin sort of stood in between those two positions and said, yes, there is a real presence, but it is a spiritual, not a physical presence. That's the position we take, all right? Why all of this? Why am I telling you this? Well, Heidelberg becomes a center of this controversy with Lutherans and Calvinists fighting it out in the university and in the churches of the Palatinate. It became so bad that the elector eventually had to banish the hotheads on both sides. Imagine that. Reformed hotheads. (laughs) But now what do you do? How do you bring God's people together when God's people have been arguing and fighting 
and debating. Well, what he decided to do, Frederick III, what he decided to do was to order, commission, if you will, the creation of a new catechism. A catechism that would serve to bring together God's people on the things that we can most surely agree upon. This catechism was commissioned and written primarily by a man you've already quoted. Because when you did your confession of sin, you quoted something from Zacharias Ursinus. Or Zacharias the bear, if you will. Zacharias Ursinus from the Heidelberg Palatinate Church Order. He also was the primary author, along with a man named Caspar Olevianus. They loved those Latin names. They were the primary authors of what we know today as the Heidelberg Catechism. It was published in 1563, some 80 years before the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism. And very quickly, this catechism was divided into 52 sections so that it could be explained from the pulpit every Sunday of the year. It quickly became one of the most beloved of the Reformation standards because of its intensely personal tone. And in time, the Heidelberg Catechism was adopted by the Continental Reformed Churches as one of the three forms of unity that they hold to. Now, you wonder, why in the world am I telling you all of this? Well, it's because I'm going to follow the pattern, at least to some degree, that was started in Heidelberg. I'm going to try, with God's help, to explain question one of the catechism. We're going to catechize this morning. Now, you know question one. I hope you do. We have repeated it several times, and you will repeat it after the sermon. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I warn you, Um, I tend to be something of a crier. So probably somewhere in the course of this, I will choke up. Um, Just be patient, and I'll, I'll pick up and keep going. So I have really one point this morning. And as you see with the title, the title is Comfort. My one point is this. My comfort is that I am not my own. I belong to Christ. And then I want to give three subpoints to that from the catechism which are found in this text as well. But I want to just follow this thought. I am not my own. I belong to Christ. You know, if you follow the Bible's teaching on comfort, what you find is that it frequently occurs in the context of providential affliction. Comfort is not something that we think of, perhaps, as sitting in a nice chair 
before a warm fire, sipping, I don't know, hot coffee. And being comfortable. Comfort, biblically, is something that is offered, as we saw in verse uh, chapter 40 of Isaiah, it is offered to God's people in particular as they are going through affliction. Comfort my people, comfort my people. We tend to view comfort as lack of affliction, lack of problem. The Bible views comfort as something that comes to us in the midst of affliction, in the midst of difficulty. Comfort is not about us as much as it is about God and what he has done for us. How is it (laughs) that the fact that I am not my own is comfortable? How how can that be? That doesn't really ring very true in American ears. But let me see if I can just give you a quick illustration from overseas. Uh, Several years ago, I was traveling in Nigeria with a friend from ELI, and we were Uh, Our transportation arrangements had fallen apart. This happens often in Africa. And so we found ourselves having to take a, uh, to hire a bus, actually a couple of seats on a small minibus. And this minibus was going to take us the six hours up country into uh, the area where we were going to teach. And everything was going well, as fine as it can in Nigeria flying over the potholes because he was driving at, I don't know, 100 kilometers an hour or more. It wasn't his vehicle. And so we come and we're moving along very nicely and suddenly we come up on this seemingly endless stream of stopped traffic. It's a two-lane road. And as far as the eye can see, the traffic is stopped. And so we stop. And we wait. It's 98 degrees. I know because I checked. It's hot. I have no water. We're not moving. It's getting dark. There are highway robbers in the bushes. This is all going on in my head. We need to get where we're going by the time it's dark. And I can't do anything but pray. So I prayed. They were not, you know, the the disinterested... Uh, well-formed prayers that, that we try to pray in church. These were the prayers of, oh, you've got to do something. <laughs> well, the Lord did. And as we finally made our way through uh, hours and hours later, I, it felt like days, but as we made our way through, we saw that there was a massive pothole that had filled with water and a semi-truck had tilted over in this pothole and there was only a narrow way through so we had to go through one car at a time 
And no one was willing to give someone else the right of way. My point is, I was helpless. There was nothing I could do to change the situation. I simply had to pray. That's the only recourse I had. I'm not my own. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The comfort in that is the fact that I can't do anything. I'm about to give three illustrations of this. By myself, I'm completely unable to do anything for my spiritual benefit. It's a sobering, in some ways it's a frightening truth, if I am on my own. But Christ has all power. And he acts with all authority on my behalf. I am not my own, but I belong to Christ. Christ's redemption, as the passage tells us, he gave himself for us to do what? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ self-consciously as he hung at that cross was buying us for himself. And that's comforting because he is God Almighty. We may not be able to do anything for ourselves but he can do all things on our behalf. Because we belong to Christ. All his blessings accrue to us. This is the true source of our comfort. Now the catechism goes on. Speaking as the catechist to the catechumens. The catechism goes on and gives us three areas in which this is true. The first one is this. I cannot save myself. But Christ has redeemed me. See, each of these three are areas where we are helpless. But Christ has acted. So the first is this, and it says in the catechism, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Do you hear that? Fully paid for all my sins. I may not be able to save myself. But our text tells us that the grace of God has appeared. And that Christ gave himself to redeem us. We did not earn it. We did not even anticipate it. It simply appeared. You remember when you first trusted in the gospel... It it was almost as if the truth of the gospel just appeared on the horizon. You'd heard about it, perhaps, but never understood it. And then suddenly the grace of God appears in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the most lovely thing 
the most lovely person that you can imagine. And your heart embraces him. The grace of God has appeared. Christ gave his life in exchange for ours. And the gospel begins to transform the way that we think. It begins to reconcile us to the concept that we are helpless, but Christ is not. It begins to move us in the direction of saying, you know, my trust is in Christ, not in what I can do. These are all the hymns that we sing, right? Let me quote you something from, again, the Heidelberg Catechism, but I want to quote question 60. The question is, how are you righteous before God? And the answer goes this way. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. You see why the catechism speaks in such a way that tends to draw us in. Because it's written from the perspective of what does all this doctrine mean for me? How does it change my life, my perspectives? I cannot save myself. But Christ has redeemed me. You know, when, when Martin Luther understood this truth, he said, I felt myself to have been reborn and gone through open gates into paradise. It's comforting. I can't save myself, but Christ has. Secondly, I can't control my life, but my Father does. Here's what the catechism says. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Our text in Titus talks about the circumstances of our life. And it says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. And then, listen. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God uses our circumstances as training. We cannot control our life. We cannot control our circumstances 
but our Father does. And as I look out this morning and as I think about many of you, and I I think about some of the things at least I know about your circumstances, they're not easy. They haven't been easy. There have been struggles. There's been pain. There's been illness. There's been loss. And you have no control over that. I cannot control my life. Nor you, yours. But your father does. He controls it. And as the catechism says, all things must work together for my salvation. You know, it's fascinating. We tend to get caught up in how difficult things are. But there is a divine purpose for all that we experience. God knows what he is doing. We may not see it. We may never see it. Not in its fullness. But we are being purified by the Father so that we can be Christ's own people. This is the fulfillment of the great covenant promise. You will be my people. And your circumstances today, the things that have led up to today, and in the future, whatever future God has for you, those are all under his control as he purifies and trains each of us to be the people of Christ. This confidence enables us to stand firm and to honor God even in our most difficult times. Example, I'm going to quote you something from Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish covenanter. He was a member of the Westminster Assembly. In the course of his life, because of his adherence to Reformed theology, Samuel Rutherford suffered greatly. He also suffered in his circumstances. He suffered the loss of his wife, the loss of five children, and the loss of his pulpit ministry because he was Reformed. He was banished. He was declared a heretic. And he was declared a traitor to the crown. But as he lay dying, he looked at several of his fellow pastors and he said this, My Lord and Master is chief of ten thousands of thousands. None is comparable to him in heaven or in earth. Dear brethren, do all for him. Pray for Christ. Preach for Christ. Do all for Christ. You see, he understood. I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Quickly, one last thought. I cannot live as I should, but the Spirit assures and enables. 
The Catechism says, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Our text speaks and says, the people for his own possession, verse 14, are zealous for good works. But that does not mean that we are perfect in good works. I cannot live as I should. I cannot live as I would. But the Spirit assures us because we are well aware of our sin. We just confess that. We know that we are sinners. And the enemy, the tyranny of the enemy at times comes to us and accuses us that we cannot possibly be Christ's people. Look at the sin that is in your life. But the Spirit assures us and enables us to wait patiently for our blessed hope. Until then, we battle the world, the flesh, the devil. And we hope. We look toward that final salvation. And the Spirit makes us zealous for good works. I love the phrase, wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Does not say perfectly, but it does say wholeheartedly. One last quote. You know I love history. So this last quote is from our, our good friend. He's our good friend because we, we sing one of his hymns every month, at least. Uh, John Newton, we sing Amazing Grace. We know this man. This man was a slaver. He was engaged in the slave trade and God, through unbelievably difficult circumstances, brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. He became a pastor, one of the wisest pastors of his age and tremendously influential. As he grew older, Newton said this, although my memory is fading, how many of you can identify with that? Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, I hope that as we sing this closing hymn, that God will make the applications of this truth in your life. Let's pray. Father, somewhat different sermon this morning, and yet I believe something that you would have said and learned and taught. And so, Father, we commit your truth into the hands of your spirit to apply it in our lives. And we thank you for our forefathers in the faith, for mothers as well, 
for the things that they have passed on to us, both in teaching and by example. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.